Good afternoon, everybody. This is Greg Lois. If you're joining me today, it's because you're scared, nervous, worried, and concerned about the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services new submission guidance on workers' compensation settlements, specifically your set-asides. So I see we've got a lot of attendees today. Um, welcome. Thanks for coming. I'm going to try to uh, quell some of the nervousness and some of the anxiety. And I'm also going to try to answer as many questions as I can about the impact of the latest guidance in the reference guide. So this is totally live. Uh, I'm going to ask everyone to ask questions as we go through, and I'll try to answer as many as I can at the end. I'm going to do about 15 minutes as a quick, quick, quick overview of what our uh, secondary payer obligations are. I'm going to talk about how the new guidance uh, from the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Service impacts that. And then I'm going to talk to you about potential solutions. So uh, that's my goal for today. Um, somebody give me a thumbs up or a hands up sign in the um, chat so you can tell that you're in the chat. I've also put, thank you, I've also put um, a handout. So everything I'm going to tell you today is in that white paper, uh, which I've put into this um, webinar materials today. So hopefully you'll be able to access that as well. But there's a lot of questions around this stuff. And today I was actually talking about this with some national experts. Um, and there are a lot of unknown unknowns uh, out there right now. So we're going to try to address those. So presentation today, um, what your Medicare liability is, what kind of uh, impact I'm going to see in your settlements and what your choices are going to be. We need to know about this reference guide. And I'm going to give you my legal opinion and as, as well as my summary of it. Um, I'm going to talk very briefly in the beginning just to bring everybody up to speed, do a little sort of table setting as to what are the requirements of the Secondary Payer Act and how we're currently fulfilling them and what we're going to do next. And obviously this is live, so I'm hoping for a good discussion. Uh, if you need more general information or background information, um, check out our handbooks. Every one of our handbooks, New York, New Jersey, Longshore, all have chapters on secondary payer compliance. All right, let's talk about which one of your cases are going to be impacted by these changes. And the answer is going to be any full and final settlement uh, in a workers' comp case where the claimant is currently entitled to Medicare. So that's the ones that we're worried about. Um, what was Medicare intended for? Well, we all know it's, it was intended when it was instituted for people over 65 years old or uh, at the end of life. So with an end-stage renal disease or not likely to survive uh, or, and on Social Security disability, it's obviously expanded uh, over the years, uh, over the last 70 years. And now it's, it's quite extensive. It includes Part A, B, and now medical uh, prescription coverage. So it, it's really expanded. And the reason uh, we are worried about this and having this conversation today is because uh, the Congress added some language to the statute, which really served to just codify their general understanding, which was that workers' compensation was always expected to be primary to Medicare. Medicare should always have been in a secondary payer status. And the truth is, uh, even early in my practice over 20 years ago, uh, people were really not taking Medicare into consideration when we would settle a workers' comp case. We just sort of expect that they would be on the hook in the future uh, to make payments. Um, since 2001, that has not been good practice. And since 2001, uh, we've been advising clients uh, about their obligations under the Secondary Payer Act. So what it really means is that when there is a workers' comp coverage, 
it's always primary to Medicare. We, uh, Medicare should never be paying for medical treatment. Remember, that's the only thing it pays for. Uh, that should have been part of the workers' compensation case. And really, this is only an impact uh, when we settle a case. And we settle a case by way of a full and final. And then that silly-hearted claimant goes to get medical care in the future. And what do they do? Uh, they present their Medicare card. And that's the secondary payer violation. And I believe most of them occur by accident or just based on forgetfulness. Uh, or something gets coded as uh, related to a, uh, a workers' comp code or something that was uh, established in the workers' comp case, and that triggers that secondary payer liability. Uh, there's a lot of downsides to our uh, compliance obligation, and these are the penalties. Uh, there are penalties built into the statute, uh, including penalties, which I didn't list here, which are the penalties uh, for failing to do our uh, mandatory insurer reporting, so the MRI exposure as well. Um, really how these cases come about or where the exposure comes about is where the claimant goes and presents their Medicare card for treatment. Medicare's already flagged it because they know this person obtained a lump sum settlement. Medicare refuses to pay for the treatment and then uh, that triggers off the person, uh, the claimant, either having to reimburse Medicare, and then of course they don't have any money, so they come to us, the lovely insurance carrier or self-insured or the employer in the workers' comp case, uh, who will then be exposed for those penalties. And so that's why we're really worried about this. Uh, claims that are impacted, generally your cases where the claimant's over 65, where you're doing a lump sum settlement. Uh, it's also your uh, cases where the claimant um, has been on SSDI for more than 24 months. And generally, I say these are our oldest and generally most difficult to close files. Those are the ones uh, where uh, the person's already become qualified for SSDI or they're older and they're not going to return to the workforce. So these are generally our higher exposure cases in general. Um, another challenge we always face is, is the person even on Medicare? And you'd be surprised how often I turn to my adversary and they're not even aware of whether their own clients on Medicare. Um, so often the first time we find out about it as your defense counsel is you, the client, that's either a third party administrator or the self-insured or carrier, you're telling us uh, this, this person's entitled to Medicare. Um, you should also know that here in our practice is that in every case uh, that we defend, we serve a demand for the claimant to complete a Medicare request for information in form for us. And that's so that we can find out uh, if this person's on Medicare. Rarely though, do my adversaries return it. It's also very common, unfortunately, still in the year 2022, for us to find out that the claimants on Medicare during settlement negotiations, uh, because opposing counsel tells us that's the first time that they've brought it to our attention. Um, the other thing we can look at is some red flags like the claimant's age and their likely entitlement. So there's two real concerns that we have to have in a workers' comp case when we're settling it. Um, and I'll talk about those in a second. The other concern we have is that uh, prior to closing the case, uh, what if Medicare is making payments? Well, those, uh, and, they, and they shouldn't have been. So that's payments for medical care that should have been paid for by the workers' comp carrier, but it was instead uh, paid for by Medicare. And it really could be this, even if it was a denied case, for example, case was not established, the body part was not established, um, or the person was simply going and getting treatment and presenting their Medicare card, right? That's a problem. Those are called conditional payments. Uh, the good news is in the new reference guide, nothing changes with regards to conditional payments. Um, in general, it is our expectation and our obligation to pays, pay for that treatment, right? So when Medicare pays for that treatment that we should have paid for, 
essentially we just reimburse Medicare. It's very straightforward. Medicare will send a conditional payment letter, which will list all the payments they've made. Uh, we think the best practice is to compare that uh, to confirm that the treatment was actually related to the workers' comp case, and if so, to simply reimburse Medicare. So that doesn't change. You, your conditional payment situation does not change. However, uh, the new guidance is going to impact closing cases. And here in this office, we're closing cases for full and final lump sum dismissals. I often say this is our goal in most cases is to resolve it quickly uh, with a full and final. Uh, those are Section 32s in New York, Section 20s in New Jersey by stipulation in Connecticut or 8I under Longshore. And I just put those in there as examples because those are the jurisdictions we practice in. But really, uh, this applies to every and all jurisdictions that allow you to close a case full and final with future medical included. So any case that's closed uh, in any jurisdiction full and final with future medical included, uh, that's going to be, uh, you know, your case is gonna be impacted. Again, going back to the statute, it just keeps saying over and over again, hey, we shouldn't be paying for this stuff if you should have. And that means even into the future. So we have an expectation and obligation under the Secondary Payer Act to make sure that Medicare has a, uh, doesn't get a future exposure for medical. So what does that mean? What is their future interest? Well, it's any medical that they would have had to pay for that should have been charged or should have reasonably been expected to have been paid for by the workers' comp carrier, pretty straightforward. Um, that's, when we talk about the future interest, we're always talking about Medicare's future interest, not ours. Not our future interest, all right. Um, let's see, can I get this to switch? There we go. Um, and I always tell my attorneys that work for me, hey guys, we have to think like we're Medicare's attorney and our job here is to protect Medicare's interest. And again, we're representing in a carrier or self-insured, that's what we need to be thinking about. So the next question is how do you protect a future interest, right? Well, how do we protect Medicare from having to make these payments in the future? Well, there is no single mandatory or required way, uh, but, the set-aside arrangement has emerged as the preferred way to combine. Um, even in the Medicare reference guide, which again, they just updated, they just changed it January 10th, and that's the reason we're having this meeting today, there is no one single specific set-aside arrangement uh, that they are specifically approving or requiring. So I've had clients do very, very creative things uh, to either fund, set up, or design a set-aside, uh, none of them have been limited or prohibited by what Medicare is now saying. But Medicare is, um, and in the past, Medicare has always said there's no requirement that Medicare review or approve the proposed set-aside, right? So CMS has very specifically said throughout all of its reference guides, and even the, the, the one that uh, was just updated on January 10, 2022, that they don't have to review them. You, you can do a non-submit, we call them, uh, set-aside allocation to protect Medicare's future interest. And really, we're just putting money aside uh, to protect Medicare. Uh, the valid set-aside should contain an estimate of all medical costs that would have been paid by Medicare, if not for the workers' comp claim, and that should go for the lifetime of the claimant. So it's pretty simple, and that's straightforward. It says, by the way, uh, in the reference guide, uh, how to design this and how to do this, and it's, and it's pretty straightforward. Um, since 2004, prescriptions have been part of a typical set-aside, and generally, they are a high percentage of typical set-asides. 
Um, I'd also point people out to the reference guide, which demonstrates that Medicare allows the use of generics, et cetera, to reduce your prescription costs. Now, a, a set-aside may contain, does not have to contain, but can, things like an annuity that would pay the uh, money to the claimant for their alleged future medical needs, future medical treatment, um, and that can also be self-administered. Uh, self the set-aside, even an annuity, could be self-administered, meaning the claimant has complete control and custody of those funds and can use them as they see fit, as long as they're using them to pay for medical, which otherwise would have been paid for by Medicare. So um, how is future medical estimated? Under the reference guide method, uh, the workers' compensation recovery contractor reviews the submissions. They're supposed to apply the reference guide rules. And if you go through the reference guide beginning at section eight, it is quite extensive. Goes, applies them uh, to the set aside and make sure it meets the requirements uh, of Medicare. And really what they're basically saying is whatever the claimant's doctor is saying the claimant needs for future treatment at the time of settlement, they just basically multiply that times the person's life expectancy. And so the truth is, these uh, uh, Medicare, the straightforward, just multiply whatever treatment they're getting now times the rest of the person's life, these are really like outrageously high amounts of money. It's often treatment that no one really expects the claimant to get. And really, they've been quite unrealistic. Uh, and this has led to a whole secondary market, uh, which has been selling things called evidence-based um, products. And, and sometimes they're called real world products or, or data guideline products or data-based uh, products. But basically these evidence-based products are set-asides, which are generally created by a vendor or an expert, um, and that tries to utilize um, some, I'm just going to use like, I'm going to use the word realistic or more realistic projections of what the person's actually going to receive in terms of medical care for the remainder of their life. Um, rather than just using sort of a straight line multiplier, which is what CMS is kind of uh, would prefer people to use. Um, these products, generally speaking, uh, almost always promise that they're going to be a lot lower than what the CMS reference guide method would show you. So they're trying to show you that they're going to have um, a lot of cost savings. And I have sat through a lot of these pitches, as I expect a lot of people on this call have sat through these pitches. And some of these pitches will say things like, we'll save you 80% off of the standard CMS set-aside allocation. So you know, these could be quite significant savings uh, and quite enticing. And for, you know, for the last 10 or 15 years, maybe even longer, if I can use my recollection, uh, we've been using this. And we've been um, generally telling clients uh, evidence base is okay. And we've also been saying, generally speaking, we don't recommend submitting for Medicare pre-approval because we don't see it's necessary underneath the rules, which it has never been. And by the way, at this time still is not. So when is a set-aside necessary? Well, it's necessary in every single one of your cases where the claimant is Medicare entitled and the uh, settlement will re end that you are your responsibility for future medical. There's also uh, a best practice here. Um, Medicare will also review and approve a set aside where the person is reasonably expected to be Medicare entitled within 30 months of the settlement and the settlement's over $250,000. And so in those cases, we're also recommending clients obtain set asides. Um, what in, when is the claimant reasonably expected to get Medicare? Well, they've got a whole series of checklist of rules and uh, you can take a look at those here. All right, let's talk about pre-approvals in particular uh, because this is really gonna cut to the, to the, to the quick of what this uh, new guidance is all about. Um, so you can submit your 
uh, set aside to Medicare and they will review it and, and bless it. They will essentially say, this is a good one. Good job here. Thanks guys. Or they'll come back to you and say, nope, this, this set aside doesn't adequately protect our interest. Um, and then you'll have to go back to the drawing board and sort of redo your allocation. However, Medicare's always had review thresholds. In other words, they didn't want to look at every single settlement uh, because that a burden, the workload would be too high. And uh, we can all uh, recollect from our practice, hey, there's so many settlements that are just nominal settlements or de minimis settlements under $25,000, under $20,000, heck, even under $5,000. And if everybody had to submit every single settlement to Medicare uh, for their pre-approval, it would probably snow them under in paperwork. So Medicare has set two th review thresholds. The first one is um, you can't request a review of a workers' comp settlement if the settlement is under $25,000. And on the slide, I, I wrote it up a little bit differently. I said, if the claimant is currently entitled, then you can request a review if the settlement is over $25,000. It doesn't matter. There's, it's a review threshold. That is not a safe harbor. Let me repeat, that is not a safe harbor. That has never meant that Medicare, uh, that you don't have to consider Medicare's interest uh, if you're settling uh, a workers' compensation case for a claimant for under $25,000. It's never meant that. It just means that they won't review it uh, if the settlement is very small. Now, the, uh, Medicare will never review a uh, proposed set-aside or a settlement uh, where the claimant is not entitled to Medicare unless the amount in settlement is over $250,000 and the claimant has a very reasonable expectation of being entitled very soon, within 30 months. And that's really Medicare making sure that there is a way for them to weigh in where the claimant isn't currently entitled, but they are getting a lot of money and they expect to be entitled soon. All right, so in practice, we had generally recommended against pre-approval of set-asides because it costs my time and money and it delays the overall settlement. This means a great number of lump sum dismissals did not have to be approved, settled, submitted for approval and were not uh, uh, submitted. And it led to quicker settlement approvals with really no downside, right? Uh, and, and the reason there's no downside is, hey, uh, there was no avenue for them, sorry, I want to say, hey, we've required it. Still isn't, but you know, we, we really didn't see a downside to it. The new guidance that was just issued last week from the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services now says that some set-asides will be viewed as, quote, a potential attempt to shift financial burden by improperly giving reasonable recognition to both medical expenses and, in, and income replacement, close quote. And they go on to say that this specifically singles out evidence-based and non-submitted uh, uh, set-aside allocations. So if you're doing evidence-based ones currently that are not following the reference guidelines and you're not submitting, this is a sort of a shot across the bow. And they're saying now, hey, we're going to start uh, maybe not accepting these or we're going to be uh, viewing them very differently than ones that have been based on the reference guide and have been submitted. They go on to say that they will deny payment for medical services related to the workers' compensation, injuries, or illness, requiring attestation of appropriate exhaustion equal to the total settlement, less procurement costs, before the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services will resume primary payment obligation for settled injuries or illnesses. Now, it's a terrible sentence, but what it's going to mean is the claimant is going to need to demonstrate 
complete exhaustion of the net settlement amount before Medicare will again pick up their medical costs. In other words, they're not going to give credence to the amount of the evidence-based and non-submitted secondary payer allocation, and instead will say, whatever the total amount of the settlement is, that's the amount that we're not paying in initial medical care. So the document uh, also says uh, that the potentially offending set-asides are those that are labeled evidence-based or labeled non-submit. I'm going to tell you this really means every set-aside set aside that does not follow the reference guide criteria. Um, now, what they're threatening is that if it's not prior approved, then CMS will not pay for any related medical, meaning medical related to the same injury codes and diagnostic and treatment codes that are found in the workers' compensation case, up to the value of the full settlement. Again, not just the amount of the set-aside. This is a huge and marked departure from prior practice. There is absolutely, in my opinion, no legal precedent or authority for Medicare to do this. In fact, it is a little bit contradictory because, not just a little bit, a lot contradictory with all the other statements which are found in the reference guide, which says that submission are not required and a pre-approval is not required. So this is a tremendous departure from what they had been doing in the past. And again, uh, the CFR has not been updated. The Code of Federal Regulations or the regulatory framework which with, uh, which it, within which the CMS is required to work has not been updated. So there has been no legal changes. This is really just CMS sort of signaling to us, here's what we want to do, here's what we intend to do. They're putting it out in a piece of guidance which is not binding neither on them nor on us, uh, but it is absolutely a shot across the bow and something to be thoughtful about. All right. More reasons that this is a problem other than just, hey, uh, should we be submitting or not submitting? Uh, what about the great many settlements that fall outside of the review threshold? So in other words, what about all my settlements for under $25,000? Again, this is regardless of jurisdiction, right? Wisconsin, Illinois, Florida, doesn't matter. Uh, in, in no jurisdiction can you submit a, uh, uh, a settlement, a lump sum dismissal, including medical, to Medicare for review unless it exceeds $25,000 or $250,000 plus a reasonable expectation. So there's a great many settlements that absolutely fall outside of the review threshold. Is Medicare really saying right now that uh, all of those settlements, uh, they're not going to abide by the set-aside allocation that the parties came up with just because it falls underneath their workload threshold? That's crazy. I mean, that's very contradictory and hugely problematic. Also, there is absolutely no reference in this kind of sloppily worded uh, paragraphs, two paragraphs that were stuck into the reference guide, to cite to any kind of authority or really any bigger reasoning that CMS has to review these proposed set-asides. There's really nothing. And I could tell you absolutely from a legal standpoint, there are no regulations granting this authority to CMS or for them to make a uh, blanket requirement like this. So uh, you've got some choices, and I'll talk about those in a second. Um, now, I think best practice is we're going to start recommending to clients that they get a Medicare-approved set-aside. Um, however, my office is we're going to be prepared to educate clients on set-aside options because, again, pre-approval not required. Uh, there's You could still use evidence-based 
set aside allocations if you wish, and you could also use uh, a legal opinion as a uh, basis for your Medica Medicare set aside allocation. I actually think the legal opinion is one of your stronger options because you'll have at least a guarantee uh, should Medicare later down the road change its regulations, uh, you'll have the opportunity to at least, should you become exposed, I'm talking now from the carrier or self-insured employer perspective, should you become exposed for Medicare compliance risk, uh, that you'll have a pocket to go after, which would be the attorney's uh, uh, professional liability policy. So um, we're always going to recommend to you, by the way, when we're closing a case, uh, what we think about in terms of your proposed set-aside. Now, your options, uh, I'm going to give you sort of the risk uh, of each one of these as well, because I know I've got clients on every uh, sort of spectrum uh, on, on the risk tolerance uh, threshold here. So I'm going to talk a little bit about these. So your, your options at this point now. First, submission of set-aside for prior approval. And this is where you're getting a set-aside based on the reference guide pricing guidelines. This is very doctor-biased. So here's where we're going to get a set-aside that's calculated based on the claimant's last treatment course and extrapolated or multiplied times their uh, you know, life expectancy. Take that, you submit it for prior approval, you get back your lovely letter from CMS saying, yes, we approve of this, uh, please send us a copy of the final settlement when it's been approved by the jurisdiction. That's your lowest risk option, okay, lowest risk. If you do that, you're definitely going to be safe, you're going to have um, strong compliance, and if you couple that with very good um, uh, mandatory insurer reporting or MRI reporting, MRIR reporting, excuse me, uh, you know, consistent uh, payback of conditional payments, uh, consistently uh, getting set-asides approved and submitted, I think you're going to have very good compliance and very low risk uh, of having exposure under the Medicare Secondary Payer Act. So that's your safest and best option uh, right now if what you care about is uh, lowering your compliance risk. This is going to lead, though, I promise you, to a delay because we're going to have to uh, wait for Medicare to approve the, set, the proposed set-aside allocation and then take that to court and get that approved. So you're going to introduce delay. You're also going to introduce uh, the opportunity for Medicare to come back and say, hey, this amount that you guys calculated, it's not high enough. We want more money put into this set-aside. So even though this is the lowest risk from a compliance standpoint, it could have higher cost and uh, delay uh, associated with it. The next uh, opportunity here is for an evidence-based set-aside. I put this one sort of in the middle because how risky this is from a compliance standpoint is really going to be dependent on how good the evidence-based set-aside is and then whether it's submitted or non-submitted. Are you going to send it to Medicare uh, for their prior approval or not? Now, the evidence-based set-asides, again, I'm a big proponent of these, uh, and generally speaking, it's because it takes into account things like the jurisdictional um, you know, uh, uh, medical fee structure, maybe medical guidelines. Some of the states I practice in have medical treatment guidelines, which limit the amount of care. So, you know, these will do a good job of reducing your dollar exposure. But again, Medicare is telling you that these, they're becoming less and less uh, accepting of them. In fact, now saying that they're not accepting them unless they've been pre-submitted. So, uh, you know, you're going to have that choice of whether you submit or non-submit them. The next one I have here is, I just want to put this out there because not a lot of our clients and not a lot of the community is aware of this, but you could do a legal opinion-based set-aside, and that's 
you know, where your attorney or an attorney, and there are um, national practices that now do this, will uh, establish a set aside and they'll take things into account, like what is the litigation risk in this case? Uh, how good are my jurisdictional defenses? And give you a legal opinion. You can then utilize that legal opinion as your, as your set aside allocation or justification for the set aside allocation. I'll tell you right now, just from uh, speaking to some thought leaders on these, um, you gotta be prepared for some compliance risk here in that if Medicare comes after the legal opinion, which says, you know, your set aside should be X dollars. Um, and again, is going to challenge the authority of Medicare to even do this. And, and believe me, I agree with the legal opinions and I, I've talked to some thought leaders about this. Uh, you know, in our opinion is that Medicare absolutely does not have the precedent or the ability, legally speaking, uh, to require submission for pre-approval. That's not in the statute and it's not in the regulations. Uh, you have to be prepared to go up and try that issue in court Again, uh, that would be paid for or covered uh, by the uh, uh, professional liability policy of the attorney who wrote you that legal opinion, uh, but that's another option. So I wanted to go through all of them so that they could be considered and we could talk about it in terms of that risk continuum. Because again, we've got clients that are on every sort of angle of the risk continuum. And some people say, Greg, I don't want to submit because I know it's going to blow up some of my settlements. I know it's going to increase my value, and I know it's going to in, in, increase the time or delay to reaching that settlement. I don't want to do it. And then I have other clients who say, Greg, I like belts and suspenders on at the same time, super careful. I want to do a, not, I want to do a submit, and I want to only do it according to reference guidelines. So you've got those choices. All right, that's the end of my prepared remarks. Now I'm going to come over here and try to get some questions. Okay, if you haven't typed your question in yet, type it in now because it makes it a lot uh, better for me to answer your questions. The first question I have is from Ron. Ron says, Greg, if you have time, please discuss whether, our, whether med and temp are included in the $25,000 threshold. And so the answer is yes. Um, the $25,000 threshold is for whatever the settlement value is going to be exclusive of the set-aside, the whatever the set-aside allocation is going to be. If your settlement is including medical and temporary and it's less than, and uh, medical and indemnity, but it's less than $20,000, less than $25,000, Medicare's not even look at it. They, they will not even give you a review of it. They don't care uh, so much as uh, what the uh, settlement is allocated for, right? Because we're not even thinking about things like damages, punitives, loss of consortium, all the other things. We're just thinking, hey, it's a workers' comp case. It's going to be lost time, and it's going to be medical. There's, there's not another component, uh, uh, but it could be permanency. It could be other things. So the answer is, yeah, $25,000 is that threshold for review, and they're just not going to look at that. And again, that creates the problem here. If you're not even going to, if you're telling me the workload threshold is $25,000, I mean, you're not even going to look at it. But any non-submit is going to be questionable on its face, as is any evidence-based. That's problematic. It's self-contradictory. I mean, that's that's one of the chief problems we have in complying with this. Um, all right, let me see if there's any other questions. This is a tough subject, so I'm surprised there's not more questions with this many people attending. Um, all right, I don't see any other ones popping up. If you do have any other questions, please feel free to reach out to me. I'm always available to answer them. I think this is going to be something that we're going to keep our finger on as it develops. 
I'm interested to see if there are going to be uh, CFR or Code of Federal Regulations submitted that are going to impact this or not. All right, I got another question here. Oh, a whole bunch more questions. Oh, they all came in at the same time. All right, Melissa asked the question, Greg, do you anticipate the claimant attorneys refusing to accept non-submit MSAs due to the recent comment from CMS? Any ideas about how we can combat that? Yeah, so uh, it's gonna depend on your jurisdiction, right? I think in some of the jurisdictions I practice in, the claimant attorneys don't care. They don't care about this set aside. You know why? Because they know the claimant's just taking that set aside money and they're going to Atlantic City and they're spending it on the weekend on a poker game, right? They, they don't think about it. But some of the jurisdictions I practice in, like New Jersey for one, where the, the judges are very good to put their finger in every single settlement and, and wanna weigh in on every settlement, I think that some of your claimants attorneys are going to start saying, hey, wait a second, this is a non-submit um, uh, uh, set aside. I'm not comfortable with this. Let's do a let's do a submit. So I think it's going to vary by jurisdiction. Uh, it's also going to vary by the kind of attorney, meaning the big mills are probably just going to let them spin through. Uh, and some of your practitioners in other states are going to be a little bit more careful about it. So I think you're going to start to see some pushback, uh, particularly from your better uh, informed claimants attorneys. Now, our job as your defense counsel, when the claims attorney is demanding a submit on a CMA, on a set aside, I, if you say, Greg, I don't want to submit, it's my job to educate them and prove to them that it's not required under the under the current guide, which it's not, right? And it's also my job to prove to them, hey, under the under 1395Y, the Secondary Payer Act, uh, under the Code of Federal Regulations, it's not required. So that's going to be my my job as your advocate to make sure they understand that. Uh, so whatever position you want to take, uh, I will absolutely uh, advocate for that position. Um, all right, Mike asked the question, Greg, can you speak regarding denied or fully contributed claim settlements with medical allocations? Yeah, there's, uh, here's the problem, Mike, you just, you're just putting your finger on it, right? And that is, hey, what about all these cases, Medicare, where it's a denied matter from the beginning, we controverted this case, it maybe remained in denied status, we might have never paid any medical whatsoever, and now I'm going to go resolve this matter. When I go to resolve the case, now I discover, oh, the guy applied for SSDI or the guy's on Medicare already for whatever reason. I know, as your attorney, that there is no chance, no snowball's chance in, in heck that they are you're, you're going to have any future medical exposure down the road because it's not a controverted case. Case is strong. There's a good argument that we should never have had to pay anything. And really, we're not primary because there was no workers' comp case. That's where you know we're looking at that legal opinion and we're making the argument like, look, there's jurisdictional defenses here, and that those are strong. And you know, it might be a situation where you say, you know, I want a judgment on the jurisdictional issue, uh, just so that you're protected from Medicare's future interest. And that would be going to court and saying, Judge, uh, we we both parties are sitting here. We need you to do a dismissal or we need you to do a judgment on jurisdiction uh, to throw the case out. Maybe you'll still do a lump sum dismissal afterwards or something. Uh, just to protect yourself. But yeah, absolutely, that's something to be thoughtful about. Um, you know, that that's the problem that this is, this is uh, the contradiction that this is sort of raising. On one hand, you're saying, hey, I need, if it's not submitted, we don't believe it's a real settlement. On the other hand, you're, the, you're using your brain and saying, but this case is a denied case. I mean, I could submit anything you want to you, but in, not in a million years do I have actual exposure. And so this is a circumstance where Medicare is silly rulemaking or attempt at rulemaking, right? This is this is publishing some statements in a guide, uh, is going to really blow up a lot of settlements or a lot of resolved matters. Problem. 
All right, Derek asked the question. Losing my voice here. Similar to what you said, Greg, our evidence-based MSA vendor we use advised Medicare has no legal authority to require CMS approval of any MSA product. That's true. I agree with them quite strongly. They directed us continue business as usual unless we hear further from them. They also advise that there will likely be a legal challenge by a group of evidence-based MSA companies of these changes. Great. Awesome. They should do that. I agree with them. They should win too. Greg, should we be concerned with continuing to use the evidence-based MSAs in the interim? So the answer is, and the true answer is, where do you fall on that risk continuum, right? You want to be super safe, belt and suspenders, it'll never come back in a million years. Uh, you know, my answer would be, well, they're telling you right now, they're giving you a signal that they don't like these evidence-based and, and they don't trust them and they want to put their finger into them, okay? Now, what that could mean is in the next several months, you'll see them uh, go to Congress and try to get changes made to the CFR or, you know, really through the rulemaking process is how they're going to do it. Uh, they'll try to get some changes made to make this uh, a requirement in the future. But I agree with your vendor. Right now, it is not a requirement. I think all this is at this point is really a signal for Medicare that they're going to start looking at these things and that we might see some rulemaking in the future. Uh, but I agree with your vendor. Now, the second part I'm going to tell you about that is most of my clients say to me, Greg, when I'm settling a case, I'm trying to get out of a lawsuit. I don't want to be part of this anymore. And so you've got to also kind of weigh the thought of like, well, I'm trying to get out of this thing. Do I really want to be dragged into a lawsuit that's going to go before a district court? First, can go to an administrative law judge. Then it's going to go to a district court. And we're going to get, try to figure this out and, and get this uh, uh, clarified. I can tell you right now that there are cases before the Supreme Court. There was a recent decision on a Medicaid issue before the Supreme Court, which I think is you know, sort of good for our position. The law, as I read it, absolutely, they do not have the authority to require submissions. And so for that reason, I am agreeing with your vendors. But and here's the big but, it comes down to your risk tolerance, your risk threshold. Uh, if you want to be super belt and suspenders, or are you willing to sort of see how this turns out? I, I can tell you from my perspective, when I'm guiding clients, I'm going to be talking to them really case by case and very individually. Hey, here's one we should, here's one we shouldn't. I'm going to talk to clients in the next couple of weeks about their risk tolerance and what they want us to do for them. So I hope that's helpful. Um, great. That's all the questions. I don't know why they all popped through at the same time, but I guess maybe everybody typed them in together at the same time. If you have another question and I didn't get to it, please feel free to reach out to me. This is a fun putting this together for you. As this develops, I promise I will keep you up to date with what's next. And if there is any rulemaking, I will certainly let you know. Okay, everybody, have a great rest of the week.